This is Jim Kaplan. I'm a lawyer, a former walking tour guide and writer for the History Almanac. And today I'm going to talk about Marcus Garvey. I became interested in Garvey when I used to do walking tours of Harlem fascinating story. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our New York City area correspondent, Jim Kaplan, is here with, as he said, a story about Marcus Garvey and Garvey's role in African independence. Where did the movement for independence for Africa uh, from the colonial powers uh, begin. Uh, there was a recent uh, excellent PBS special on Africa, which implied that modern African independence had its origin in a number of ancient African kingdoms, and uh, particularly the in uh, Ethiopia, which was never subject to uh, European colonialism. With all due respect, I have a different view. I believe that African independence in the 20th century which is one of the great events in world history, actually began in the United States at 120 West 138th Street in New York City in Harlem. This was the headquarters of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Ah. And I'm going to argue today that I think that was really the origin of the movement to free African from colonial domination. Well, tell us who was Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican-born printer who, as a young man, had traveled through the Caribbean and became keenly aware of the severe discrimination against blacks, particularly dark-skinned blacks. Uh, he, he was born and grew up in Jamaica, where he led a printer's strike, but he then traveled to the Caribbean and saw that blacks were discriminated against throughout the Caribbean, and he later moved to London, which he thought was the center of the British Empire, where he met several black nationalists seeking to end white European colonial domination of Africa. It was at a library in London that he read and was greatly inspired by Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, in which Booker T. Washington, the great American black leader, was the founder of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, urged that blacks should pull themselves up and establish black institutions by themselves before confronting whites or seeking equal rights through integration. When and why did Marcus Garvey come to the United States? Marcus Garvey came to the United States in 1916 in the hopes of meeting Booker Washington. But Washington, with whom he had had some correspondence, had recently died. This was around 1916. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Garvey had, while in Jamaica, formed what he called the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA, whose purpose was to encourage blacks worldwide, and particularly in Jamaica, to form their own enterprises and institutions and, and also to seek an end to white domination of Africa. At the time, uh, the colonial powers had basically taken over all of Africa. He soon found himself in Harlem and initially started as a street speaker on 135th Street and Lenox Avenue near today's Schomburg Center, promoting without great success the UNIA's program, which in certain respects was similar to uh, uh, Booker T. Washington's program with the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, at the time, Harlem, which previously had been a predominantly upper-class Jewish community, 
was becoming the cultural, political, and intellectual capital of black America. It was through the efforts of Philip Payton's Afro-American Realty Company, which had previously been backed in part by Booker T. Washington and others, that black entrepreneurs had successfully overcome racial restrictions to live in one of New York's most elite neighborhoods. I previously Mm. did some months ago a uh, podcast, an article on Peyton, who I think was a very important figure in the history of uh, New York and certainly Harlem. Mm -hmm. Now, this movement to improve black living standards seems to be supported by some white people and white organizations. Why was Garvey skeptical about that? Well, although the effort to move into Harlem had been significantly fostered by black enterprises operating on Booker T. Washington's principle, it had been arguably supported by certain significant white allies, primarily Jewish, and the established black leadership through such organizations as the NAACP at the time, sought close cooperation with white supporters of racial equality. It was believed that only through working with liberal whites could the uh, Harlem and and the black freedom develop. Garvey, however, was highly skeptical of such a strategy that sought cooperation with whites, as he believed white cooperation could not be trusted and that whites, particularly Jews, would ultimately seek to dominate these organizations. In his view, blacks should operate separately and not mix with white people. His message was therefore not in tune with the established black leadership in Harlem. However, he one day got a big break when Hubert Harrison, a black socialist, which was somewhat more sympathetic to his views, asked him to speak at a meeting at a church, Bethel, American Bethel uh, Church in Harlem. Garvey made an impassioned plea for blacks to assert themselves around the world, noting particularly their subservient position in their native Africa. Where is the black man's government, he said? Why are we in chains around the world? We should retake Africa, which is our native homeland. Why did Marcus Garvey's separatist approach to race receive a good reception among blacks? Well, this was right after the First World War, and many blacks in Harlem had high hopes that the country would move toward greater racial harmony and equality. But with the recent race riots after the First World War in East St. Louis and elsewhere, uh, this did not seem to be happening. And blacks had been an important, uh, had fought in the First World War with the 369th, and they hoped things would get better, but they weren't. Thus, Garvey's message that blacks should assert themselves with their own enterprises and particularly should try to overthrow white colonial governments in Africa began to attract many supporters. His movement, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, soon soon expanded into a half-built church at 120 West 138th Street, which he named Liberty Hall. That was after the... uh, Uh, headquarters of Irish independence in Dublin, with whom he had some sympathy. At Liberty Hall, he would develop a more extensive organization. One of the things he was very conscious of was symbols. Uh, There had been uh, a song that said, everybody has a flag but the coon. Well, he felt that the blacks needed an important flag, and thus he unveiled, unfurled the flag of the black, the green, and the red, the green for the green of Africa, the black for the black race triumphant, and the red for the blood 
red blood of the millions shed in the fight against slavery. And that flag is still flown throughout the world and would be his symbol. He announced further that they should form an African legion of black soldiers who would train to take back Africa. And they should form a number of important black-owned businesses, including most prominently a black-owned steamship company called the Black Star Line to ferry goods and immigrants from Africa. It was very difficult for blacks to get uh, steamship uh, passage. Uh, uh, so this would be uh, a line that would be favorable to blacks, would also be a profit-making enterprise, and would ultimately be one of his more important, if not his most important, enterprise. Mm -hmm. Now, Garvey's uh, UNIA, his organization, had a major meeting in 1920 at Madison Square Garden. What happened there? Garvey's uh, began to obtain a significant following among uh, blacks in Harlem, particularly those who were more uh, skeptical of the view of the talented 10th and the NAACP and the organization's interracial organizations. Uh, in 1920, the UNIA organized at Madison Square Garden what it claimed was the first international convention of black people from around the world, which was attended by more than 25,000 people, including allegedly delegates from many African nations or African tribes. In 1921, more than 50,000 members, it was alleged, uh, of the UNIA's uh, African Legion marched through Harlem in an attempt to sh build a show of force that the, his organization would be able to wrest African colonies from European domination. The UNIA recruited contributions from Afro-Americans throughout the country for investments in its Black Star Line, which actually did purchase two steamships for voyages mm -hmm. to Central America, and ultimately Africa. From a political point of view, the initial sailings of the ships of the Black Star Line were highly successful. Uh, it is estimated that when the first ship of the Black Star Line uh, arrived in Panama, there were more than 100,000 people out to see it. Similarly, the sailing of the Black Star Line ship Phyllis Wheatley from the 135th Street Pier in Harlem drew more than 10,000 excited well-wishers. Unfortunately, from an economic standpoint, the Black Star Line was very poorly managed, as it was cheated on the price and purchase of these ships and other supplies, and like Philip Payton's Afro-American Realty Company, it failed economically. The many investors in Harlem and elsewhere who had entrusted their money with such high hopes to Garvey's UNIA-backed Black Star Line and its other enterprises hmm. thus lost virtually all of their money. Hmm. Now, Marcus Garvey's hopes for a unified Afro-American movement had other challenges. What were they? Garvey also ran into conflict with the established civil rights leaders in Harlem, particularly William E. Burkhardt Dubois and the NAACP. Uh, Garvey's program of black separatism, hostility of efforts to obtain equal rights for blacks, and support of racial segregation and his broad support in Harlem, uh, a program which was directly contrary to the, right, to the civil rights organizations, did not endear him to those who were seeking to rebuild, to build the civil rights coalition of reconstruction and multiracial society. 
They were particularly outraged in 1923 when he met with the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, who endorsed his program for black separatism and the idea that blacks should return to Africa. Hmm. Garvey also ran into legal trouble. What happened there? Yeah, when the Black Star Line failed, uh, there were many people who were out to, out to get him. Uh, Assistant District Attorney Edwin Kilrow indicted Carvey for mail fraud, and in 1924 he was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. Now, his sentence was later commuted by President Calvin Coolidge uh, on condition that he be deported to Jamaica and never return to the United States. The commutation of his sentence was in some extent uh, uh, an attempt by Coolidge to gain favor with certain people in the black community. He had attempted to establish the UNIA in Jamaica, but never had nearly the success that he had in Harlem. Hmm. How has uh, history assessed Marcus Garvey? In 1935, James Weldon Johnson, who was a prominent leader, Harlem leader of the NAACP, in his book, Black Manhattan, uh, assessed the impact of Garvey's movement as favorable in the sense that it encouraged many blacks to have uh, confidence in themselves and a belief that they could, on their own, build up their own enterprises. However, he thought that his ideas that blacks around the world, and particularly led from a movement in Harlem, could overthrow white colonial governments in Africa and create black states similar to the pre-colonial African kings, was completely visionary and absurd. The whole idea that Africa could be become free based on the efforts of Africans uh, as part of the UNIA was to him ridiculous. He thought to delude people into Harlem into thinking that such a radical transformation of world politics in the next century was possible was absolutely absurd, as did many people, most people at the time. Has Marcus Garvey continued to have an impact on uh, Afro-Americans and on Africa? Yes. Well, undoubtedly, many of the people, which may some people say may even have been the majority of people in Harlem, who had followed Garvey's flag and marched in his uh, African legions, were disappointed at his failed dream when he died in 1940. However, although many of them may never have lived to see it, they need not have despaired because the history has a strange way of acting. Uh, after he tried without success to revive the UNIA, he, at the end of his life, moved to London, where he died in 1940. But his ideas were kept alive as the result of his efforts of his two wives, uh, uh, first uh, Amy Ashford Garvey and Amy Jacques Garvey, particularly his second wife, who published many of his speeches. And they tried in a quixotic effort, to keep by the idea that blacks should return to Africa and throw off colonialism. One of the people who became very influenced by uh, Amy Jacques Garvey's uh, uh, writings and uh, was, a, was a young black U- U.S. college professor who had grown up in uh, British West Africa but had come to the United States in his early 20s and had studied at Lincoln at uh, the University of Pennsylvania and later had taught at the Lincoln University and the University of Pennsylvania. His name was Frank Nkrumah. 
Mr. Nkrumah, along with uh, Garvey's wives and other remnants of the UNIA, organized the fifth annual conference of African peoples in Manchester, England. There had been several conferences to discuss how they could uh, eliminate colonialism in Africa, a somewhat quixotic effort. Uh, ironically, one such attendee was W.B. Dubois in 1945. Hmm. At that conference, they laid out plans to raise Garvey's flag and his concepts throughout Africa and overthrow the racist white governments. Uh, and Krumah said that Amy Garvey was the, had the greatest influence on him of, any, of anyone in, in, as a young man. After li having lived in the United States for most of his career as a, and, and had some success as a professor of philosophy in Pennsylvania, Nkrumah decided that he would change his career and he would return to his native Africa, West Africa, uh, to revive a moribund independence party. Hmm. Uh, and he would go throughout Africa, throughout uh, West Africa, and he would speak and talk about Garvey and raise the Garvey flag and try to rally mm -hmm. people uh, in the bush in Africa. Now, uh, much to the shock of the ruling British, who probably considered him and Garveyism a fringe American import, he began to gain considerable traction. The British said they were going to have an election. The black representatives could uh, have 20% of the vote, uh, with white representatives having 80%. Much to the shock of the British, Krumah's party won an overwhelming victory. And unlike the, more, the less radical parties, he insisted that there should be full independence. After all, he said, in the United States, the white and black people vote together. Uh, why are we not equal to you? With 250,000 whites in the country and 5 million blacks, and Krumah began to force the British to grant the country a much greater vote, and ultimately he was appointed the black prime minister, and ultimately he insisted that there be full independence. And that began to resonate not only in uh, British West Africa, but also in Britain. This whole concept of racist governments oppressing blacks became somewhat uh, controversial. Finally, with the success of Garvey, British government was obliged to permit independence for a black government headed by Nkrumah. By 1957, when Garvey, in 1920, had said, where is the black man's government? It was now a black man's government in the state of, of Ghana, and Kwame Nkrumah was the head of it. And he was a direct mm. disciple of Garvey and the Garvey movement. Meanwhile, other leaders who, from the uh, 1945 conference would regain similar success in other parts of Africa. Jomo Kenyatta was one of the uh, leaders. And he, too, was able to uh, say to the uh, British in Kenya, look, you can't survive uh, with millions of us and only thousands of you under your yoke. We need to be independent, too. So Garvey's movement would begin to move off completely throughout Africa, although Garvey never set foot in Africa. The red, the green, and the black flag would fly in triumph throughout many of the countries of Africa. And mm. by the year 2000, his program of having blacks retake control from the white colonial governments first announced in 1919 at Liberty Hall would completely succeed. 
So Garvey's flag now flies in triumph over virtually all of Africa. It was within 50 years uh, almost of James Weldon Johnson saying this is ridiculous. It was a reality and is a reality today. Is Marcus Garvey remembered in New York City and in Harlem today? Well, it's very ironic in my view that very few people in New York realize that the African independence actually began in New York City on 138th Street. Garvey is known today as one of the forerunners, if you will, of black nationalists like uh, Malcolm X. In the movie Malcolm X, uh, Denzel Washington, the first line is, my father was a follower of Marcus Garvey. Uh, he's thus considered to be uh, the Malcolm X and the uh, black nationalist, which is somewhat true. But I think what is not recognized, his real importance, was as the leader of the band who created African independence, who brought the... Uh, so there is a, a Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem, but... To this day, there is no plaque or other marking on the nondescript residential building at 120 West 138th Street. I believe at one time there was some plaque, but it's long since gone when I've, since the 20 years that I was giving uh, uh, walking tours. And Garvey's Liberty Hall, though it is probably one of the most important sites in the history of the black people internationally, I believe, mm -hmm. is not marked. Mm. And very little known. If you go, even people, when, when I used to give tours, uh, I would uh, talk about Garvey on 138th Street, and people would look at me, both uh, people who resided on the street, as obviously under the tour goers, as if uh, this was a totally new revelation. But I think it should be there. there someone should mark the spot, and... The importance of garbage should be much greater, much more widely recognized. Let me um, ask you, first, thank you for the, all this information about Marcus Garvey. But let me ask you uh, about the tours you used to give in Harlem. I didn't realize you did that. I knew you gave tours in lower Manhattan where you had, had worked. Uh, but how, how did it work out that you did tours in Harlem? Well, I, I've always had interest in various areas of the, of the city. Uh, I'd become, actually, I'd worked for the city of New York for uh, about 20 years ago. And uh, uh, it was, uh, I used to give tours to the 92nd Street Y and later an organization called Culture Now, which is run by a woman named Abby Suckle, who's actually running to be the, the president of the AIA. Uh, I, I think after my first tours, it seemed to me that the two key elements of Harlem were Philip Payton and Marcus Garvey, from my point of view. Now, I've, I've had a significant fascination, although periodically I haven't given a tour in probably five or ten years there. I'm less giving tours and doing more writing now. I, I think this is one of the uh, unknown areas of New York history. Uh, and as you know, I'm interested in uh, talking about things of New York history, which are known as they should be, you might say. And certainly I feel that uh, Marcus Garvey and African independence is one of them. Uh, I noticed, by the way, that a tremendous upsurge in interest in black history with the Black Lives Matter and the, the Underground Railroad uh, Commission has. But I haven't noticed them actually uh, discussing this element of what I would think to be one of the most important uh, areas of black history. But then who am I? I'm not, I'm not a... Uh, a professor. I'm just a, 
a walking tour guide and a writer. Right. This is, may sound like a silly question, but when you do your walking tours, do you walk backwards? Uh, I, I guess. Uh, uh, frankly, it's been four or five years. I it's all right. Because that's uh, the part that yeah, always... Yes, yeah, sure, sure. I, I, we would normally get about 30 or 40 people, and we would walk through Harlem. Uh, we'd start at uh, Schomburg and then talk about Peyton, and then we would talk uh, go up to 138th Street. Uh, and tell and us, by the way, the name of that street is Odell Clark Place. Odell Clark was a uh, uh, an aide to Adam Clayton Powell. It's right near the uh, Abyssinian Baptist Church. What is the Schomburg Center? I know you've probably told us told me that before, but what what is that? Oh, the Schomburg Center is probably the leading center of black culture, certainly in New York City and perhaps the country. It's a, a great. Uh, uh, a repository. It's a museum, and it's named after Arturo Schomburg, who was a, uh, a bookseller, bibliophile, and had a tremendous collection of books. And uh, I think it, he was initially supposedly taught that blacks had no history. But it, it's a, a great facility. I unfortunately haven't been there in some time. I mean, is Harlem still the center of uh, African American culture? Well, I, I certainly think it's the historical center, and, and I, I don't want to speak to, uh, you know, I'm not really uh, one to say as to what the center or not center is. I think some people think Atlanta is. Uh, as you know, I've done a number of, uh, I do a number of different things. The last one was on uh, Aaron Burr, and before that on the South Street Seaport, Bruce and Wendy Wasserstein, and I'll announce first that I have two more that I'd like to do. One is going to be on Rick Rascola who was the uh, saved 3,000 people during 9-11. That'll probably be my next uh, article and podcast. Mm -hmm. And I may, after that, do one on uh, Jimmy McManus, who was the district leader, the Irish district leader on the West Side. So I, I have a number of different things that I, I'm interested in. And, uh, uh, you know, frankly, your podcast and uh, John Warren's uh, New York Almanac have given me a great opportunity to put my thoughts in paper. Jim Kaplan is a historical walking tour guide and writer who's regularly written for New York History Almanac and been here on the Historian's Podcast. He has in the past given a number of walking tours of Harlem and for the past five years was president of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. He's also a tax, estate, and guardianship lawyer, the founder of the Manhattan law firm of Greenberg and Kaplan. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our first interview with Jim Kaplan was in August of 2018 when he explained how he became interested in the history of Lower Manhattan. I became interested in the history of Lower Manhattan when, as a young lawyer working on Wall Street, I would, at lunchtime, visit various uh, sites that were in the neighborhood, such as the New York Stock Exchange, Federal Hall, the U.S. Customs House, Francis Tavern Museum, the South Street Seaport. And I came to view, believe, which I still do, that Lower Manhattan is probably the most historically interesting area of the country, certainly the most historically interesting area of New York City and perhaps the world because of all the things that have happened there. I would say I was also, over time, which I still believe, disappointed that many of the people who worked there, many of my colleagues, seemed to have only a passing knowledge or interest of the historical 
importance of the area. And then in uh, 1981, I took a course called Tour Guide Training with the historian, architectural historian Barry Lewis, which was run by the Municipal Arts Society, in a sense, turned semi-pro as a walking tour guide. If we were children, I wasn't able to do it full-time, so I couldn't quit my day job. But <laughs> I've had a fascination with the area, which I would say has grown, and I would say I still have the view that it is probably the most historically interesting area of the country, if not the world. Since then, Jim Kaplan has joined us for 10 podcasts on the New York City area, ranging from history stories on Thomas Paine to Aaron Burr, to FDR's Labor Secretary, Francis Perkins. 